uh, is it, it helps me, it helps me with time because I don't have to um, upload to YouTube and then upload the audio version to the, the, the podcast. And so it's instantly there. So if any of you wanted to go look at this video, you could go to the YouTube page that we post things on. It's under live streams. Even before I post it in Canvas, it just makes it a lot easier on, on, on my life. And it makes sure I don't forget to upload our videos and stuff for class lectures, just in case you, you miss a class or um, need to go back for a refresher. So I just wanted to let everybody know that. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. So where we left off, and I kind of wanted to save this uh, for a discussion today. is talking about what's called theory of core knowledge, okay? The theory, the theory is, is it's basically, it is basically, Okay, I found this on the web for what does Eric- Okay, I didn't ask for you, Sarah. All right. <laughs> what the theory is, is the basics area of knowledge that needs to be innate or built in uh, into human into the human brain. So when we talk about theory of core knowledge, what we're talking about is the 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 knowledge that we're born with that isn't reliant on experience. Okay, and one thing that we should state that a lot of the research that is done on core knowledge um, it has to do with infant gazing. Um, um, more today, we're using more neurological measures. But uh, when infants look longer at events that are a violation of their expectation, that means that they, they don't have a concept for something. They will stare at it and gaze at it longer because it's not something that they're familiar with. So they have to gain some type of expectation for it. So what are some things that we know infants don't have to pay a lot of attention to, to understand? Okay, well, the first thing is, is knowledge that an object moves as a cohesive unit and that does not contact other objects unless they are close to each other and it moves on a continuous path. So unless something is, a, it's kind of that basic uh, physics idea that if there's no object that, that um, if something is moving in space, unless another object interferes, that object will keep moving in space, okay? Knowledge that agents, such as people, act purposefully towards a goal, okay? So when, when, when ex for example, when mom goes and gets a bottle, uh, the infant will act as if that is mom's purpose, that's mom's goal. So uh, and that's just a basic example, but infants are born with the ability to know that we do things towards a purposeful meaning, okay? Knowledge within limits of number, okay? And, and I've mentioned this before, uh, infants do have 
uh, an understanding of basic math properties such as addition, subtract, subtraction, and um, division and multiplication. And we also know that um, they have a, a better than statistical average of the knowledge of statistics than, than even the average adult does. Okay, I don't know why that's not working. Um, so, uh, so for example, some of the areas of statistics that infants tend to do better than, than adults or even younger children um, is things like probability, guessing the probability that event is going to occur or not. Uh, basics understanding of what happens when um, one object reacts to another object and the probability of that occurring again. Uh, children tend to be better, infants, I should say, tend to be better than, than even early childhood, well up into adulthood. And knowledge of spatial relationships. Okay? I know that Piaget says in, that the sensory motor phase is about understanding an infant's place in space and sensory information and locating themselves in that space. But it seems that from, from our newer uh, research and technologies, that infants are born with this ability to understand where they are in space. Um, and a good example of that was the uh, cliff, the, the table cliff example we went over, I believe on Monday, where an infant is able to go to a ledge and understand that there's a depth difference um, at a ledge. So, uh, these are the core things that we, uh, the, that we know that infants are born with, okay? Um, do infants understand gravity, okay? They understand the difference between possible events and impossible events. So uh, in, in this research, um, we find that infants have a perfect knowledge that you can move this object across this plane, okay? But what violates their expectations and what they go, uh, uh, that's not possible, is when you move it from halfway on the plane to off the plane. And this staying here in space uh, is impossible. This is not a possible event, okay? And so, um, so we know that babies are surprised by this if, if, if we're able to do it and it's something that they don't feel is possible for it to occur. So do infants understand concepts of gravity, those kinds of things? Uh, in, in a lot of sense they do because they know that this object right here should tip over and fall to the ground because it can't be suspended in space like this, okay? What other things do infants know, okay? We know that infants learn through, through some basic uh, properties. We've shown that uh, infants can be classically conditioned. And just a reminder of the differences between these, if, uh, if you've taken um, uh, intro to sight, classical conditioning is what we call associative learning, okay? Meaning that we associate innate responses um, or innate uh, uh, stimulus responses with non-stimulus responses, 
Okay, so for example, in the classical conditioning scenario with infants, infants can easily become comforted by dad, even though dad is not the associated comforting um, object such as mother when they're born. Okay, and so we know that they know classical conditioning. Operant conditioning is the reward and punishment aspects of um, um, uh, learning. Um, and, and the thing, and imitation, we know that infants will start to imitate around six months of age and on. Uh, there's evidence recently that they actually imitate much earlier than that uh, with research on things like uh, eye blinking and those types of things. Um, but the thing that I want to note is these are all forms of learning we carry throughout life, okay? And so it seems like we're, we're, we're kind of wired to learn through association, learn through reward and punishment, and learn through imitations of other individuals, okay? So uh, just some things dealing with attention. We have what's called selective attention and sustained attention. Select attention is when you purposefully select something to attend to. So, uh, you know, right now I'm sitting in my office. I have a beautiful view out my window. I have uh, the fan going and everything else. Um, now my attention isn't so selective. But uh, then I bring my attention back to what I'm doing here in my job and uh, trying to look at these slides and present this information. That's selective attention. Sustained attention is when we purposefully provide attention to a single stimuli for a, a, a long term period of time. Okay. We should say a few things about sustained attention and selective attentions even into adulthood is one, we do not maintain complete sustained attention, okay? Um, if you were able to have sustained attention to this uh, lecture that I'm doing right now, um, uh, at the end of this lecture, lecture, you should be able to recall the entire lecture. But uh, we know even though we think we pay attention to the complete lecture, after a few hours after this lecture, you'll only remember about 10 to 15% of what was stated. So even though we think we sustain attention, what happens is that the brain that's processing that, those nerve cells kind of wear out. So every 10 to 20 seconds, your brain has to alter the attention and then bring you back to attention. And we cog cognitively and consciously don't realize this is happening until we test people's memories, okay? Uh, the thing we do know is infants are, do have that lack of ability, capacity to control their attention. So for example, if they're looking at something that is very stimulating, and you snap your finger neck to their head, they'll change their attention. Um, and that, uh, they are tend to be attracted to novelty, okay? And respond less to that novelty over time. So that's what we call habituation, all right? When we talk about memories of infant in infancy, 
We know that three months old can remember up to one week or recall up to one week. 18 month olds can remember up to 13 weeks. Uh, but then after that, so each week, you have to subtract one week from that, okay? So for example, a three month, let's say this, let's say we have a three month, well, let's take a 24 month old, okay? They can remember everything to 23 and uh, let's say uh, 23 hours. Okay, or how should I put this? So let's say, okay, let's take an infant at three weeks. They can remember everything that happened between the second and third week, but not anything from the first week to the second week. Maybe that's a better way to explain it. So they can't remember this, but they'll remember this. And then the following week from three, when they're four weeks old, they'll forget this. And they'll only remember three things up to the three to fourth week, okay? And the same thing we find with 18 month old. Now, after, after about 18 to 24 months, we start to retain some knowledge, some core knowledge, but it starts to be very dependent upon language, okay? around 18 to 24 months, our memory starts to become very dependent upon the words we hear and how those words are associated uh, with what we're experiencing. Okay, this is perfect example of classical conditioning. So for instance, a child sees uh, something that's round and it's spherical and uh, uh, mom says ball and points to the then that association with ball gets associated with that spherical object, okay? Now, uh, we know that there is something called infantile amnesia. And as I stated at the beginning and when we were talking about physical um, um, development, we mentioned that one of the theories is a pain theory that uh, infants uh, even prenatally uh, experience pain. So they experience the pain of all being squished out of mom. They remember the experience of, um, uh, you know, pretty much being tossed and turned and cold and hot and hungry and all of those things. So it, it seems that maybe there's a biological structure to make it so we don't remember that pain. But we also know that because around the 24 month period, uh, children start to make memories based on language. And if there was no language to associate those memories with before then, then they have no way to recall or have those memories because they don't have a language to put to it, okay? This was um, shown, and we know that language tends to be fixed, and this was shown in what's called the magic shrinking machine experiment back in 2002. What, um, what these experimenters did, I believe they're from Australia, 
is they, they, they went to homes with 24 months olds, okay? So we have 24 month olds and they brought this machine uh, that had uh, these cranks and handles and objects on it. And the, what, the, what the 24 month old could do is they could put their favorite teddy bear in it and whatnot. And as they pulled the crank or pushed these different levers, levers, it would make it make an illusion that made the illusion that the, the, the teddy bear was shrinking. And then once the teddy bear was completely shrank, some lights would flash off and on and do those kinds of things. And at 24 months, they would ask what the uh, child experienced. Okay. And then over the next year, uh, what they had uh, parents and everyone do was record all of the new words and everything that the infant was learning over a year's period. Okay. And at 36 months old, the experimenters would return. They would bring the machine as to help recall. They didn't recreate what was gonna happen. They just said, do you remember this machine? And of course the infants would say, yeah, yeah, my teddy bear, it shrank and blah, blah, blah. But the interesting thing is, is in the description of what the, in, the, the young child saw, the 24 months saw, they were not able to use any new words that they learned over the year to describe their experience they had at 24 months. They could only use the words that they used at 24 months. So for example, over, the, over that year, if they uh, learned the word bell ringing, and they didn't use the word bell ringing when uh, they originally saw the, the bells going off. They wouldn't use that term to, to explain their experience, okay? And this seemed to be evidence of this infantile amnesia that really the reasons why our memories get poorer and poorer and poorer when we look earlier and earlier and earlier into uh, early childhood and into infancy is because the memories of those of those events and everything are completely seem to be uh, based upon only the words we knew at the time that we learned those work those words and and we couldn't use new words to describe past experiences. Now, this magic shrinking machine phenomenon tends to end at around 36 and so and forward. So around 36 months, around 36 to 48 months, infants start to use new words to describe uh, old experiences, but not experiences that were learned before 36 to 48 months, okay? So, an example is, is let's say an infant learns something at 48 months, and then at 52 months, they're able to use new words they learned at 52 months to describe what happened at 48 months, but not anything before that. Okay, does that, does that make sense to everybody what I'm trying to explain?
And Rachel, I just saw your questions. How do they run studies on babies that young? One, we look at behavior. And two, in our modern times, we also can look at different eye movements. We can look at a, a, a whole profile of nonverbal cues that let us know about the infant's experience. Plus we use, uh, in our modern time, we can use neurological measurements as well. So yeah, it's kind of a cool time to be studying infants. Uh, because like I said before, technology and our advances in science and everything, uh, pretty much that's why we thought infants were kind of these empty vessels. Uh, but we're learning all this kind of cool stuff about them and they're kind of cool. So. Now, if you remember, okay, cognitive process, categorization, number, and executive function. If you remember in Piaget's uh, theory, he theorized that it wasn't until the formal operation phase, this is when we're getting above six, seven years old, that we start to categorize objects, okay? But current research is showing that this can happen at a very much younger age. In fact, we're finding that four months old can put things into very simple categories, at least. That infants do have the ability to categorize based on color, shape, uh, and size. Okay. We also know that around four months of age, children are able to uh, distinguish between uh, things that are similar to mom's uh, voice, uh, meaning their, their language afflicts, if they have an accent or not, and other accents, uh, mom's color of skin, mom's color of hair. They're able to categorize even simple features of people into different categories as well. Um, And this numbers concept, this is something that needs to be updated in this because this has been, these slides are, are getting a little bit old, is that uh, infants actually we think have a understanding of, of uh, both zero negative numbers and positive numbers now. So this is something that um, I might uh, find a couple articles and post in our, our uh, our Canvas classroom because this one is is has actually been disproven. So, uh, executive functions. Uh, we know that inhibition uh, develops during the first two years of life. That is the the ability to um, uh, not do something. As an example, okay. Use use your words. The and prefrontal cortex is far from fully developing. And these two, these two concepts um, are, are interesting to me because, uh, you know, when, we, when we're having children and they're learning uh, uh, um, language and everything, uh, it absolutely drives me nuts when uh, parents and caregivers uh, tell a two-year-old to use their words um, without providing examples or providing those words for those children. Um, that tends to be one of the ways that uh, uh, children can become very difficult for the adults, but it's also kind of nonsense if the child doesn't have those words to use in the first place. But in our adult mind, we assume they do, okay? 
because what we know is that prefrontal cortex start is not fully developed. In fact, um, evidence of the prefrontal cortex development doesn't fully develop until an individual is around the age of 18. But that ability to think about what words I'm supposed to be using and if I don't know those words, can I use some type of an association to figure it out? That doesn't fully um, develop until around the age of, of four or five. So, so since language is so important, let, let's just talk a little bit about the aspects of um, uh, language. Okay. And there's just a couple terms that I want to get through so that we can understand kind of um, uh, where we're going with this when we're talking about language from a developmental perspective. The first terminology is phonology, okay? And that is the study of sound. Now, this is important because um, we, we know, especially when we look at cross-language and, and those types of things, that if children are not exposed to different sounds and different languages, by the age of about three or four, they stop the ability to hear those sounds, okay? A couple examples, uh, um, uh, for example, um, my wife uh, is bilingual. She speaks Spanish and English. And when we go to her um, uh, her family's house, they, they often speak full Spanish. Now, I use the time to uh, play like, you know, create stories of what they're talking about. But when I'm listening to them from a phonological perspective, and afterwards, I ask uh, my wife, is this how that word was pronounced? Sometimes she will say no. And, and she'll try to give me the sound and I'll try to repeat it, but I don't have that ability. Um, her parents who are mainly Spanish speakers uh, are, is not able to actually pronounce my name Curtis correct because they can't get the tis uh, out correctly because they can't hear it when it's pronounced. Um, and we know that when the languages get further and further apart, we lose the ability to hear certain sounds. So, for example, English versus, versus Mandarin uh, Chinese. There's a lot of terms that Chinese cannot speak in English if they didn't hear the English sounds before the age of four or five. And there's a lot of sounds that English speakers, if they weren't exposed to that language, by four or five can't hear in their language. The other example of why this is important and to expose kids to sounds and, and different words and all those kinds of things is when you listen to a foreign language. So in this lecture, because we're all English speakers, speakers, you can hear the breaks between the words I'm saying and I hope the sentences, sentences, okay? Uh, <laughs> doesn't mean I'm talking correctly, but you can hear the breaks in words. But if you have ever heard, for example, something that I would challenge you to do, I would challenge you to look up on YouTube or something, a language you haven't heard before and listen to a video. 
because what it'll sound like is one continuous uh, talk until the person stops talking. And we have a very hard time hearing the breaks in words uh, that, that um, are pronounced. The reason that is, is because we actually don't break between words. Okay, I know this sounds strange, but when I am saying, for example, um, Jack feels like he's going to have a good day. Phonologically, that was one continuous sound. But because you were exposed to the language and the influx of language, we, our brain puts breaks between each of those words I just said. And so when we're listening to another language that we don't know about, we're actually listening to it phonologically correct. But we're not um, listening to it pragmatically, semantically, and syntax in, in syntax correctly. Okay. So let's talk about these other elements uh, now that we understand kind of the phonological aspects of language and, and sound and, and uh, what we can hear and what we can't hear based on experience. The second concept of language is syntax. And this is the grammar of language. When play becomes played, uh, so it goes from uh, uh, present tense to past tense. And so, when does that change in place based on what sound or what is added to a word, okay? Semantic is the meaning of words. So when you just hear the term nice genes, if you don't have any other context, you will fill it in with what you think it's supposed to be. So because we can uh, read the words, we know that the first one is talking about pants, and the other one is talking about our inherited genetic code that we have inside of us. But if we didn't see these words, and I just said nice genes, it would be up to you as a hearer, and I give no other context to it, it would be up to you to decide, well, he's talking about some pants, or he's talking about someone who has really good genes, so they must be, you know, intelligent, good looking, all those kinds of things that would, you would have to fill in that context, okay. Pragmatic is the way we use language in different social contexts. So the difference between when we say, hey, buddy, versus good morning, professor, and when to use the, those types of terms. So the first one is when we're changing the placement of, of, of when something is being experienced. So going from past tense, present tense to future tense. Semantics is the meanings of words, even when two words sound the same. And pragmatics is when to use proper words in a proper setting. So. Um, you know, saying, hey, buddy, to your friend while you're walking to class versus coming into class and saying something like, good morning, professor, instead of saying, hey, good morning, buddy, what are we learning today? Okay, learning those different contextual, um, pragmatic uh, contexts. Okay, now, 
I want you to think about this, really. We've been using language, um, you know, if I look at the average age of TOCC students, we've been using this language for 34 to 36 years on average, with a deviation, uh, of course, uh, for, for quite a while. So we, we have this innate understanding of syntax, semantics, and pragmatics. Um, and it becomes very natural to us, okay? But the question we often wanna know is, is that language learning all of that? Is that something that we learn, which we're going to look at behaviorism for? Or do we have this innate ability or what's called the nativist ability to learn language? Or is there an interaction? The readiness to learn interacts with the child's experience. So that those are the kind of three theories of how do we learn all of those concepts of language to know when we should use play versus playing or played. Um, how do we know the difference between each of those and how do we develop those? Because I'll bring up again, the, 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 the one thing that I've been kind of emphasizing in this class is that between the age of zero to six, the average child is going to learn 60,000 words. And along with that 60,000 words, let's do this math real quick. They're going to know 60,000 words. This might take a minute. Times three types of syntax, past, present, future, versus at least two different meanings of the similar sounding word, because you gotta remember that children don't know how to really spell words. They hear them, but they don't spell them very well. And they have to learn the pragmatics, the different social contexts. So we'll keep this one simple. Let's, uh, let's say, okay, we know that by the age of three or four, children use words at home with their family. Maybe the childcare um, and the, uh, uh, the childcare and their, their, their newly forming friendships and let's say grandma, so we'll do this at three. So let's, let's, let's just look at the math on this. So we have 60,000 words with three different um, syntaxes with at least two semantics and at least three pragmatics. So this is how many verbal and language concepts that an average child would need to know by the age of six. 1,080,000 different ways to use those 60,000 words. And Keisha, it is a lot of words. And, and I, I wouldn't have wanted to be the person that sat there and figured out how many and 
have to listen to them all. But I will tell you, in case you, this is an important point. These 60,000 words over at the age of six start to get trimmed down to the ones we use most often in our language and our daily use. So from, from about six years old to about adulthood, it goes from about 60,000 to about 3,000. <laughs> so, because that's about the number of words that adults use in everyday language. So, but I want you to think about that incredible capacity we had when we were six, right? And then the other aspect of this 60,000, so we're at 1,080,000, it's a phonological understanding of those words. So if you remember, we have to hear it, and then we have to understand breaks between it and all those things. So you could even multiply that by two and even get a larger number of, of the number of things that our little ones are, 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 are grasping. So this comes to our three theories behaviorism, nativism, and interactionism. So uh, the, the one that uh, did most with behaviorism was B.F. Skinner. He wrote an entire, um, he wrote an entire uh, book basically on using operant and classical conditioning in the development of language, okay? And he said, every word that we learn, every semantic, every, every phonological aspect is classically or operantly conditioned, okay? And then Bandura came in and said, well, it's also, you can also include imitation. So those three types of learning. All right, this book was sent to a master, at the time, a master's level student. I'll say he's a professor emeritus for University of Arizona right now. His name is Noam Chomsky. He's probably one of our most famous linguists um, uh, worldwide, actually. And he's become quite a, a, a advocate of his own, uh, both politically and, and socially. Um, most of the time when uh, people like uh, in the science field write some type of scientific book on language or something and they send it out for review, the review is about a page, maybe two pages long. Well, Noam Chomsky ate this idea up um, that, that, that Skinner was trying to present. So he wrote over 40 pages of a review. Um, and, and what he's going to argue, and, and I could put it in the simplest term. So we knew 60,000 words by the time we were six years old. I don't know about you guys, but I don't remember being rewarded for all of those words that I said, and then for putting those words together. So I don't remember my mom giving me a, a let's use a little piece of candy for using the word mom and then uh, a piece of candy for learning the word happy, and then giving me a, 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 a piece of candy for the word look, and then giving me a piece of candy for saying mom looks happy. I don't know about you guys. I didn't get that rewarded that often, and I, I don't think I'm, uh, in just three simple words we got rewarded that many times. Plus, you got to remember that reinforcement, it has to occur multiple times. 
So if you think about 60,000 words by the age of six, I don't think uh, many people got rewarded. And that was basically Noam Chomsky's argument is that we need to be in a sense hardwired to learn language, to understand it from a semantic purpose, okay? And what he's going to argue for is this notion of universal gra grammar and overgeneralization. That as we hear words and as we experience the objects that they're associated with and all of those kinds of things, that we start with overgeneralizing. So we assume, for example, anything spherical and round is a ball. And then over time, what we do is we start um, breaking that down. So it goes from being a uh, ball to a basketball versus a soccer ball. And then we break it even down more. Maybe we experience a, 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 you know, a different types of balls. And then so we start with overgeneralizing objects and the sounds that are associated with them. And then through experience and through development, we refine based on those phonological sounds that we hear and the differentiation. Remember, uh, um, uh, Piaget's concept of assimilation versus an accommodation. And through that process, we develop language. So it's through the sound of language that we start to develop our understanding of words and stuff. So it's not that every single little thing gets reinforced as Skinner proposed, because that would be literally impossible. It's through how sound gets overgeneralized and then gets refiner and refiner and refiner with experience. But what this requires is a brain that is hardwired to do that that it has to be in sense an automatic process, okay? Probably the, the most uh, uh, supported notion though is a combination of that we're hardwired for it. And then based on experience, not necessarily being rewarded for it, but based on our internal experience of, of starting to pronounce things correctly, get an interaction with our world, that we refine that those words into, into finer language, okay? But again, this highlights a few things. One, um, uh, infants especially need to be exposed to sounds. Uh, two, they need to be ex exposed to their external world and be stimulated by that external world and the sounds that are happening in that context, okay? And we see, you know, do, does everybody uh, develop language? Um, and this cognitive processing theory is just the notion that, and it it's kind of goes with the nativist idea, is that the brain is constantly processing language. And we find that it's in the Wernicke area and the Broca area, which are the two major language areas of the brain even we can see these areas active even early in infancy, okay? I forgot that theory was there, okay. And, and this kind of highlights this when we talk about the brain. And as I said, uh, we can see this area active um, in, 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 in infancy. So we have the Broca's area, which involved in speech production. 
the location of uh, motor centers that produce movement of lips and tongues. So we can see that the Broca's area is right here at this motor strip is what controls the, the lips and the tongue and the, 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 the movement of sound, okay? And we know that when this area is damaged, it produces problems in producing speech and the tendency to use only essential words when, when producing speech, okay? The other area that is associated in the brain is Wernicke's and auditory centers. Wernicke's area is understanding, creating meaning in speech, okay? Trouble making sense, but no trouble producing actual words. So what this area of the brain is associated with is hearing words, but having a trouble understanding or creating meaning from those words, okay? Uh, maybe the best example is, so let's say someone with damage in this area um, uh, they're asked, uh, they're told, Tom likes to play with trucks. And you ask them, what does Tom like to do? They have trouble, they know it, but they have trouble saying, well, Tom uh, likes playing with trucks. They'll say, Tom, truck, Tom, and they can't, they can't create meaning through, through understanding, okay? However, if they're just talking, they're able to say, Jill likes playing with GI Joes. And they can produce speech that is intelligible and produce things that they mean to say, but when they're asked questions, they can't produce the meaning for it to make an appropriate response, okay? And as we see here, the, the areas that are associated with this is the auditory area. So this is what is uh, processing um, information coming in from our sensory systems, uh, our ears. And then the Wernicke's area, which produces the meaning based on that auditory information is right here, okay? So just to recap really quick. So Broca is a trouble with producing speech when it's damaged. Warnicke's is a trouble of understanding speech, but they can produce speech, if that makes sense. All right. Does anybody have any questions? at this point. No questions. All right, so let's go through the stages of language development in the prenatal stage and then go through um, what, what we understand. So as mentioned during the physical development um, uh, uh, 
conversation is that uh, infants or the fetus can hear sound, uh, but infants prefer the sound of their mother reading the cat and hat when they heard her read it prenatally. So this is kind of an example of how we know that they, they heard it. Interestingly, and this is just something to say, if someone besides mom reads the cat in the hat, they don't have a preference for it um, postnatally. Okay, so this is why this evidence is really strong that infants uh, hear sound, but it's mainly the mother and not other external sounds. Okay, and as we explained in physical, the physical development, it's because we hear mom sound the same way she does through her jaw and jaw, not through the, the pressure she's producing with her lips outwardly, okay? Uh, newborns also show a preference for language that their mother speaks. So uh, we know that infants have a preference for things like accent um, that, that mom has, but not necessarily other accents. Um, so, you know, if an infant comes out and they, they, their mom is French, they'll prefer the French accent and will kind of, and in some cases, they, they, they get frightened at a, an English accent as an example. So let's talk about uh, stages of language development when we're talking pre-verbal, okay? So these are, these are ways infants are trying to, to communicate with us um, and so this is pre-verbal. So these are pre-words. And we know that, that we have crying, uh, which becomes reflexive at first, but then over time, it becomes intentional and goal-oriented. So in the beginning, infants will cry when they're hungry, when they need warmth, um, uh, when they're you know, tired, or when they need changed. But over time, that crying then becomes, um, I need attention right now. No, I'm not hungry. I just need your attention. Or I'm not feeling right right now, okay? Um, and basically crying indicates a need for something, okay? Uh, and this is why uh, for a lot of people, it, it's difficult sometimes to determine why an infant is crying except for interestingly mothers. And this is something that's kind of interesting when we study infants crying and we have strangers or, or even other caregivers listen to an infant and provide infants different cries. Okay, so we, we, we record an infant uh, who cried uh, before they were comforted with food or cried before they were comforted with their diaper being changed or cried before um, they, they uh, uh, got a blanket wrapped around them or got held by mom or, or whoever. So we can give this to caregivers or strangers or whatnot, and they can't distinguish between those three types of cries. But we can do those with mom, and she can distinguish between those three types of cries. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting thing that uh, we know about crying behavior is it does tend to be a very communicative tool between uh, especially the mother and the infant, which is kind of an interesting thing. Cooing uh, starts to occur around two to four months of age. 
we know that there's no intelligible syllables um, and start of conversational rules, okay? What we mean by this is we're learning that cooing, one, it is starting to exercise the vocal cords and the, the, the uh, uh, vocal systems. But it's, it's when, if you notice when infants are cooing, it's when other people are having conversations and they're trying to understand, okay, if I coo, do, do they stop and listen to me or do they continue to talk? Or am I part of the, 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 the uh, a conversation that's going on? So we've learned that this cooing that starts around two to four months is when the infant is starting to learn the rules of conversation, that you wait for someone to stop talking before you start to coo. And then another person will talk and so on. And those kind of rules of interaction. Babbling starts to occur around four to six months. And this is when we're starting to make basic one syllable sounds like ma, da, okay? And, and ma and da are the most basic types of uh, um, um, syllables that they, they, most infants learn first. And it starts to become the origins of mama, dada, uh, and, and, and usually the first words infants speak, not always, but the first. Um, and development of these babbling and these syllables really depends on the parent's response to the infant. So let's say we have an infant and um, uh, they only, the, the, the parents only respond to da but they ignore the infant when they, it says ma, okay? It will actually stop using ma and start only using da, okay? And so, because what it's learning is, is this has no meaning and this one has meaning. We'll use a O for that, okay? And so the development of different babbling sounds and complexity of babbling sounds really tends to be on the parent and caregiver's response to the different sounds that the infant is making. And when certain sounds are ignored, the infant will take that out of their sound repertoire and they will use the sounds that do get attention. So at about six months of age, we know that babies start to distinguish between sounds made in all languages, okay? They lose most of this by 10 months. So you remember I said that we stop hearing uh, uh, sounds in all languages. When we're born, we can hear all sounds in all languages um, under the age of six months. But the, by the age of 10 months, we only can start to hear the sounds that are produced in the languages that are most commonly spoken in our home. And we lose the ability to hear the sounds that aren't, okay? And this is what facilitates uh, the, the mastery of an individual's primary or what we call first language. So the language that is most spoken in the home is the one that the infant will most easily readily learn 
And then any secondary languages, languages that are not commonly spoke will be more difficult, but not impossible. And then languages that are not spoken will have to be learned through semantic means. So as adults, when we're learning a second language, you know, they show the picture and then they show the word and then you have to hear someone speak the word. And we have to make those effortful associations between those three things. In, in infancy and in childhood, they don't have to go through that complex process that we as adults have to do in order to learn language. Adults teach language by talking to babies, having back and forth exchange, we know that. Uh, we know that the more um, um, uh, language that is used uh, in, in, between infants, caregivers, and parents, the more complex the child's um, language ability will be. And we also know Excuse me. We also know that um, when we talk about child-directed speech, okay, um, you may have heard back in in the day uh, in the '90s and the '80s there was this a movement where. Uh, parents were told that they shouldn't speak to their children in childish language. So how using a more higher pitch sound, a more uh, childlike sound that they should talk as adults. Um, we learned that that is very detrimental to a child. We've learned that there's a reason why we speak differently naturally to an infant and a child than we do to other adults. And it has to be deal with the way words are stated. And I'm not sure if this is on the next slide or not. Okay. Oh yeah, that's the growth of, okay. Because when we speak a word, uh, any type of word, whether it's a low grown word or a high grown, we start with a high pitch, go to a lower pitch and end the word with a higher pitch, okay? Now, and, and that's how even though sound is continuous, like this, it's going from that inflection of a high to low to high pitch that we're able to understand the change between words. And when we're speaking in child or child-directed speech, we exaggerate this. So when we're talking to an infant, we start with a high pitch, and then we go to a low pitch, and then we go to a high pitch, and then we go to a low pitch. And we, we found out that that's how children best learn breaks in words, breaks in sound when you're starting from one word to another word. And it helps them understand how a word should be pronounced. When we try to speak to F infants in regular tone, adult tones, it's harder for them to hear those changes in pitch, okay? 
A gesturing and sign language shown to facilitate nonverbal communication. So, um, and, and this is an important aspect of, of um, that we have learned that uh, we need to make sure that when we are talking to infants and children, they see our gestures that we use along with the sounds. Uh, there is some evidence uh, in, in, in uh, some very poor childcare settings where there was one care provider for 50 children. And so in early infancy, even most infants only heard the, the sound of the, 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 the caregiver. And in a lot of cases, they'd only hear the sound of the caregiver for multiple days and sometimes weeks. Um, and those children tended to have, look, when they got older, they had a hard time understanding nonverbal cues and gestures people use. So that's kind of a, 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 an important, we have to have the sound with those nonverbal cues. And that's when in, we know that infants and young children learn, their, learn the best. So when we're talking about infants, we know that by the age of about two years, we know somewhere between 200 and 500 learn wor words. And we learn new words can result in vocabulary bursts. So what this means is let's say, this is a strange phenomenon. Let's say an infant learns five new words. Within a matter of almost no time, all of a sudden they'll know 25 new words just from learning those five words that they just learned. And then those 25 words goes to 125 words. And so this is what we call vocabulary bursts that just by learning first few and as language continues all of a sudden very quickly that that'll multiply and multiply again. There are some con constraints in um, uh, infancy about learning of language, and that's a whole object bias in that uh, uh, infants tend to uh, see, for example, they don't see head, arms, and toes. Uh, they see the whole entire feature of the individual, okay? Mutually exclusive constraints, meaning that um, when there are two separate things, they can't be conjoined. So it's hard for an infant, especially under a 13 month of age to know mom and dad. So when an infant learns their first words about their parents, let's say mom is the first word they learn. And let's say mom and dad are really good partners. They're both equal caretakers. This is an assumption we have to make. Mom will be used for mom and mom will be used for dad because those are, they're not mutually exclusive from each other. And we know there's some taxonomic constraints. Uh, for example, being able to distinguish between a dog and a cat or an elephant or a teddy bear and those types of things. So things that look similar, even though uh, as they get older, they'll learn that a cat and dog are two separate species. Uh, we know that under about the age of 13 months, distinguishing between dogs and cats is very difficult. All right, guys, 
I'm going to stop here because it looks like uh, we're hitting on our time limit 